This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios on a all too cold late March. Late yeah, March what's that all about? Yeah, late March, opening day of the baseball season and it's... 40. Yeah. I mean, this is this is Boston weather for the opening of baseball season. I, re- I remember going as a, as, as a graduate student to a lot of Red Sox games in April because they, you know, they were basically free. Yeah, um, well, like you, and you couldn't pay people. I, literally, they came close to paying people to go to those games. We will be talking about opening day, which is tomorrow, of course, and many other sports. Over the next two hours, we're here every Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey. You just heard good mornings from Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric Bradlow, our fourth collaborator, is out and about, but some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. You're welcome to join the conversation. We wish you would. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. You can email during the middle of the show. You can email between shows. If you're hearing a replay, which is going to happen four or five times over the next week, it might be a good way to reach us. It's businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We have been known to answer email on the show live. Feel free to ring that way. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We are ever more active on Twitter these days. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We also follow all of our guests, so it's a good way to tap into the world of sports analytics. We have guests coming up the bottom of this, this hour, the top of the next hour, as we usually do between now and and then open lines, open conversation. Not sure where these guys are going to take the conversation, but I'm curious. We missed last week. The snow knocked us out last yeah. week. We did a replay, so we haven't been here in a little while. Various sports heating up. Curious, fellas, what has caught your eye? Well, I've been a, a devotee for a few days of the NCAA tournament. I mean that in the sense that this was the first time I actually paid deep attention to a bracket and put yeah. one together. And Hold on. How did you do that? First time ever in your 50 years of life? It's actually the first time ever that I really worked at it. And this is, was really your doing, uh, My doing. Cade, and the fact that I got sick. The two things worked together. <laughs> All right. So I, I was home for two days with my computer. You didn't send your bracket around. How are you doing? Uh, well, horribly. Uh, well, horribly and wonderfully. Horribly no, in the sense that everyone that. got. I mean, the entire left side of the of the of the bracket just got destroyed. How do you? No, there's a, there's a guy that predicted. Uh, there's a, one of the, the top guys on ESPN has Loyola winning it all and has the Final Four perfect. Get out of here. Yep. A random guy on the ESPN pool. Yeah. Well, there are oh, well, millions I mean, of people in the year. There's 17 million brackets. Yeah. I'm just saying, every you, you your claim was that everybody got oh, right, okay. and this guy did not. This, this guy saw it coming, man. In probability. He knew. <laughs> he knew. Adi, guy I'm, or girl, sorry. You're, you're such a per- great person to ask this question because this is your first time into this thing that everybody does all the time, mm-hmm. and yet you also have high standards for like how you evaluate these things. I'm curious, how do you evaluate your performance versus what? Well, that's that's interesting. So I thought I was wiped out. I had Virginia to win. They were and you know, boom, they lost in the first round. I'm in a small pool with with a whole bunch of family members. I've actually looks like I've won one quarter of the pot already. And if Villanova wins on uh, Saturday, I'll win the whole thing. 
You just took your backyard people all the way through. Is what happened? Is that what that basically? Was your that's what happened. Like you live close to Villanova. I'm going to take them. I'm going to take the, the back. I, I mm-hmm. didn't take them all the way through. I had I had Virginia beating them in the finals, but but it was. It was very probability driven model. I didn't it didn't succumb to local biases. But I will say there's a couple of things that were, were interesting to me is is first of all, I understand the addiction of gambling. <laughs> but you understood that before. I understood that, but I never really watched the NCAA tournament with any particularly the first round because I just didn't care. But when you have a horse uh, in the race, it adds that adrenaline component that mm-hmm. makes you interested. Yeah. Um and and then and then so that's that's that was that's what kept me interested for a little bit. Once I was I thought I was out because I had all these you know losses in the first round, but it turns out that that most people, with the exception of a few um, superstars or basically lucky people, um, had the same. I'm going to get. I'm going to say superstar for this random person that I've never met. <laughs> yeah, Obviously, never, did you enter? Not just they, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I got slaughtered. Everyone, I mean, yeah, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I, that happens every year. But I, I think the, the, the far more interesting question is if 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 you were trying to win this in a in a you know a money productive way and you had to d- decide on many different brackets, how would you do that? So how would someone come up with a, a bracket that has Villanova and Kansas and Michigan and and Loyola Marymount? I mean, really. But I mean, I think that that's almost <laughs> at odds at with with. I mean, because your motivation to go into this, or at least a motivation that I always use, is it gives me something to cheer about, right? And in the tournament, good, it's good motivation. And so these sort of ensemble, like it, it's clear to actually make money with these types of things. You want to have this giant ensemble of different brackets, and that obviously is going to contradict. You know the kind of you know having the single it, it, bracket it that you're right. cheering for. Right. So I, I, you know, those two things are I think a little bit at odds. Question for you: Do Canadians say cheer more often than Americans do? I don't know. Do I do I say cheer more often than you're the only person? Most Ameri- in, you're, I don't use you're those the only words. person. I don't use the word. I, don't, I okay. think you're the only one in this in this room that uses it, which is fine. But we use right. a, a Canadian. Thing. Right. Right. Well. Well. Next year when we uh, it's very it's when very, we it's go remote very... to cover the Hockey Hall of Fame induction ceremony or something up in Toronto, you guys <laughs> will have to that? like. Why that not? Excellent. <laughs> why not? Is it? Are someone interesting? Probably in be February. It's going to be great. I don't actually know when they do it. Does does Eric have a theory of like the inner sanctums of the hockey hall of fame? Oh, as well? I mean, I'm, that guy's got to have opinions. <laughs> we just haven't uh, like elicited them yet. So, outside of the gambling and the bracket aspect of it, what about the tournament has interested you? Like, what's what 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 have you paid attention to? What surprised you? What are you taking pleasure in? Well, I mean, obviously, I I do like the kind of underdog aspect of it. The of the course. fact that eleven seed is made to the final four is, I mean, notable. It's not like unprecedented, but it's certainly notable. Well, they, the thing that is unprecedented that we haven't been live to talk about is Virginia as the one seed losing to a yeah, sixteen. Yep. In round that's one. true. Actually, it's I mean, been a while. We can't, I mean, I feel it's, like it's that's ancient happened. history now. But it's been, it's been two weeks since it ha- three weeks yeah. since it happened. Yeah. It had never happened before. Although the odds of a of it is, was around one in a hundred, and there have right. been over a hundred games of this type. So. It should have so, happened so, at least once. Let, let, I'm going I'm to this thing that happened in grad school. This is gonna, an eye-opening moment for me in grad school, which you guys are going to mock me for probably. Is was an article. I think it. What's the name of the guy who used to run the sports column in Chance Magazine? Is it Stern? Hal Stern. Yeah. Hal Stern. He had a piece. This must have been mid '90s, mid to late '90s, on estimating the odds that a 16 would be to one. And as a as a new graduate student. Yeah, I, I was I was kind of dumbfounded that you could do such a thing given that it had never happened before. Yeah, and I thought that was a neat concept. And now I, you know, I feel it's still, I, I, I'm a little chagrined that I was that naive about it. But still, at that moment, it, it was a neat exercise. And he went. My memory of it is he went through it a couple different ways. One was very empirical, and the other mm-hmm. was a little a little bit more structured. 
and um, and uh, and he calculated my I forget exactly I, I would have said probably two percent or closer to two than one but it's I'm trying to remember something that's twenty years old but the point is it was a neat example by a statistician to estimate a probability of an event that had never occurred mm-hmm. which is a pretty pretty nice idea well you do that through a model and uh, the model that I used and I think most people use, are a points model or a power power ranking model. And then you have a forecast that says that the probability of winning is a function of the point of the estimated point differential. Mm-hmm. And you try to ex- apply that out in the range where you've never seen it before. That's the thing. So, you can estimate that real nicely for all the range that you have observed, right. and then you have to extend it somehow. And the so, only way you can – let me just make sure I understand. Mm-hmm. The only way you can extend it beyond the support, as the mathematicians would say, into this area that you've never observed is to have some model – that tells you how it should extend. Some assumption, at so least. So it's a yeah. theory, essentially. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to have an assumption that, that some linearity typically extends out into a range you've never seen it. Yeah. And in fact, you, it's you a, wonder it's whether a it's true. Because in the, in the tales, you don't, expect really, you don't really expect linearity, right? I mean, ones, I remember from the Stern article, he said, it's all nice and continuous except for the ones. And they, they, they're, kind of, they're kind of extended out a little bit. Well, so... And is that the case historically that we almost always like know like yeah these definitely are the top four teams of the country and it drops you know it becomes way more arbitrary I mean, after we, that it can't be that it's categorical right? between one and two but yeah. it, it can be that the right tail is disproportionately extreme yeah right and the, and also the I left think that's tail is, I mean, is look, look at women look at women's basketball yeah. well yes you know that's, so that's right to, that's to right. make it a more extreme version of it yeah UConn women I mean good lord. There's one team and everybody else. Mm-hmm. But in this particular tournament, there were four one versus 16s, and the Kansas UNBC was, I Supposedly, mean, Virginia UNBC was was actually the one of the most extreme ones. No, it was the most extreme. Yeah. Virginia so, was the overall number one. They were over the, and, and UNBC was, was very considered very weak. Yeah. So that matchup was considered to be just a done deal before yeah, yeah. it started. Yeah. In contrast, here we are in Philadelphia, Penn um, was considered to be an, a 3% chance, which yeah. is... Hot that unusually strong number sixteen. Yeah. Let me, is there another way? I'm trying to remember how Stern did it. But is the, the other way to do it? You could look at near misses essentially, and this is the way announcers talk about it. So there are people that say, "I'm not surprised at all that a sixteen beat a one because I was there when you know New Mexico it went down to the buzzer." Yeah. So these. Yeah. Is it not the case that you couldn't look at forget discrete outcomes, wins and losses? You could look at closeness of outcomes and just somehow kind yeah, of the th- things that came down to essentially fifty fifty shots or something yeah. close to that, and literally sort to say well if these you know there if we had 16 things and we're 50 50 shots then like flip those the other way and yeah no you could totally do things that way it's a a recent it's a reasonable approach i mean if you have 100 games in the past and three of them ended very very close you might suggest that that the probability is is around one percent one to two percent right 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 and it's not one in a hundred thousand one in a thousand right that gives you the ballpark and that's really what you're interested in I mean, I've tried to extrapolate some models. I mean, I have a model yeah. for forecasting, switching to your favorite sports, uh, football, um, of, of kicking a field goal. And that is a, it looks a beautiful linear model. It's actually linear. And the log odds are linear in the distance for, to the, to, for the field goal. It looks beautiful. And then you hit around 60 yards. And then I think it just completely falls apart because there is a limit of physicality that kind of fits in. Yeah. And that it, 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 the model predicts a one in a hundred shot at about a 67-yard field goal. I don't think and it's one in a hundred. So, by the way, give us the intuition for linear and log odds for field goals. You're, you're not so you're saying that it's 
it fits. Convex, basically, right? You're, the, the, well, based so what? So what we translate say, that into English? It's hard to translate. It's extremely hard. That's to translate why I'm pushing you because you love your friggin' linear log odds. Yeah, I, I, I and do. we yeah. do speak English. <laughs> I think I think you outlined a binomial like the binomial likelihood last show. I did. It, oh, I'm going to get kicked off. Um, but okay, so is, if you move from 20 yards to 30 yards, so and then from 30 to 40. What happens with the probability of making the Well, it, essentially that translates out to a, a constant percentage change in the log odds. That's the way you would think about it. We don't want to hear about log oh, odds. God. We want to hear probability. What, you're, what I think sure, you're saying sure. is... I mean, going from 20 to 30 is an easier ramp up than going from 30 to yeah. 40. So it's and increasingly, that, it, it's it, increasingly, increasingly difficult, difficult very, to make that jump from but, th- of 10 yards. But in a very smooth way. Audio yeah. because it, it, that increase in difficulty is kind of continuously... Yeah. So, right, but so it's getting it's, harder. It's something like, so at, at 20 yards, it's like 10 to 1 or, or maybe 50 to 1 that you'll make it. At, and, and if you go from 10 to 30, it drops to, say, 40 to 1. And then 30 to 40 should have the same percentage drop in that log odds. So, so for, uh, 50 to 40 is about a 25% decrease, and this might be 40 to 32. Okay. And that's kind of how it works. So, so just to stay with this for one, one quick second, you like working with log odds. Remind us why. Because people might wonder, it's not just a second language that you know. You work with it for a reason. There's... Oh wow! I mean, the reason is it fits. Yeah, it's I mean, great that's fit the, to data the, in general. That's the that's the start you off can, with. You, well, you can okay, fine. I thought you were going to say you can use linear models to estimate. To oh, that's of course. That's, I mean, I mean that's that's why we make the translation you, it, to it, to a linear system so that we can use. You're linear. transforming the data into a system that you can that you're easier to work with. Linear that's models right. are easier to work with, and so you need to transform your data from this very nonlinear thing to a linear thing. That's right. And you're just going to do it all in log. But this is mm-hmm. the biggest trick in the in the statistics bag. One of the things we've always, over the years, we've talked about, what are our giant like rules? And we haven't really forayed into the modeling kind of territory because it's very technical. So, but, and we won't get into it any more deeply than this, but this is the general trick we have, which is to make a change, a change of scale, and then do the things you know how to do. And it's a, right. it's a great rule in general. Mm-hmm. Change your problem from something that you can't solve into something you can. Mm-hmm. And you, we have a whole bag of tools that we use, in clu- including making this sort of scale transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically almost any non-linear relationship and statistics the way we modeled is not to try and deal with it at that direct that non-linearity directly we transform the data such that we can make, do it do it linearly and so it's all the art is all about that transformation now, and in, then and then trying to interpret things under that transformation now in contrast in contrast everyone talks about m- machine learning today and artificial intelligence i think machine learning is the better term it is they don't do that it's good branding they they completely ignore that transformation and they replace it with a, a black box, which tries to do an unbelievable amount of transformations and and, and model fitting in an undirected way. Well, it's because so, the machine that learning didn't, that didn't sound like a neutral description. Well, no, no. Okay, well, let me give a more neutral description. It, no, it, which it, is it's fine. Just, I want to hear. I want to hear what was. It's, it's it's a difference of priorities, right? In in the machine learning literature and the machine learning approach to things, it's really all about. They are entire. It, it's entirely focused on just predicting as best as possible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if so, it doesn't matter sort of how esoteric or or black box your technique is. If it produces better predictions, then that's a win. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, when you apply that to face recognition or self-driving cars or whatever you want, then those those are the ty- types of problems where all you want to do is predict at the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a statistical perspective, in contrast, is more about building a model that doesn't maybe predict nearly as well, but is more interpretable. You actually understand the parts of the model and wh- how each part of the model kind of fits together to give you that prediction. And that's where you have to kind of have 
more understandable, less black box type black box type methods is that interpretation. So Shane and I wrote a paper a number of years back trying to understand why baseball outfielders and infielders make successful plays. And we built a, a model that broke it down into the various pieces that you can use to describe an outfielder and infielder's performance. How well they move to the right, to the left, in and out, speed and, and, and agility. Those things were kind of built into the model and we estimated the, the ability to do each of those parts separately. The, the modern approach today, using the better data that they have today that we didn't have, is to build a machine learning algorithm, essentially forecast whether a player will successfully make a play. Mm-hmm. And they don't care mm-hmm. how they did it. It just, there it is. Mm-hmm. And then you just see how well you do. And, and then you, mm-hmm. you take the players yep. that get the best results. So my, my concern, mostly from a distance with machine learning, is that I still see a lot of overfitting, dis, 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 meaning they, they, they read more into the data than they actually should. This is despite there being well-established techniques for not doing that well, using machine no, learning. I mean, so, I, th- I think most machine learning techniques that I've seen, I mean, they, they that as a field, they certainly, you know, the, the idea of doing out of sample prediction yeah. in order to kind of you know make sure that you're not overfitting too much. I mean that's the, in the, that's very present in the field. It, I mean it, 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 it is, is. It and is. yet somehow yeah, yeah. and yet somehow we well, still see misuse or misapplication. I mean this I see misfit. Yeah, I mean I see I'm, overfit machine learning. Right. I mean I mean you you look you I mean if you look at the great pool of people practicing quantitative techniques these days, it's broad enough. I mean you still people take people see people taking logarithms when you have zeros in your data and stuff. I, I mean, like, oh you know... Oh, my I mean, God! If I, I, I was mean, witty as Shane, I'd make a hugely funny joke about that. <laughs> well, you're not, I know, I just not. But, 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 uh, but point being, I, I, I think you should not judge the... the or, or at least I try not to judge the field by, like, the worst of the practitioners. Because, yes, there's still people out there that are, like, vastly overfitting their data. But mm-hmm. I think, at least, you know, on the academic side of the machine learning field... It's very well understood and very well established that one needs to do some sort of out-of-sample validation in order to kind of protect against overfitting of a model. Mm-hmm. Their, a their, model their models are very complicated and sophisticated and black boxy, if that's a word I can use. Um, so they are more prone to overfitting if you're not paying attention, certainly. Mm-hmm. So if you just use one of these things out of the box and don't really understand what's going on, then I think there probably would be more overfitting in that case. Do you, do you think it's also it also risks giving you nonsensical results? I mean, you, you have to, if, for example, I think folks are also too willing to just dump a bunch of data in yeah. and turn it on as opposed to dumping in data that if the machine is able to do whatever it wants to, it's, it's going to still be reasonable. So... It feels like there are many situations where a little theory, a little structure. Oh, I agree, would... and, and I mean this is why I think the statistician would say I, I'm, the statistician would not be content with, you know, I mean the sta- only if if your entire focus on prediction, your sanity checks are all at the level of predictions. You're like, you know, does this is this black box doing what I want to do? Well, do the predictions that come out make sense? Mm-hmm. Is the only real question you can ask in that way. Whereas a statistician, if you built a model where you understand the component parts, you can also look at those component parts and say, does do these component parts make sense? Instead of just predicting, you know, well, whether or not a fielder makes a catch, we can actually look and say, well, is this, you know, is the function of like, you know, like is the slope on distance traveled the right sign? Right. You know, in our model and stuff like that. We can do all kinds of internal sanity checks that, you know, you can't do as much with a black box. Great. This is Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane, Jensen, Audie, Weiner. You can join the conversation 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-WHARTON. 
942-7866. We've dropped in unexpectedly to a machine learning conversation, which I, I think it's fine. We should do this every now and then because it's, yeah. it's such it's so blowing up out there as a technique, and it is so powerful, and yet also, as with any powerful tool, can be misused and is dangerous in that oh. way. With but, great power comes great responsibility <laughs> in statistics and all things. That's right. Um, so outside of machine learning and the NCAA basketball tournament. Well, hold on. Anything else on the NCAA? Who are you pulling for this weekend? Villanova? Villanova. Not Villanova. Local. local. No. I live two miles You're over Villanova, Villanova I'm over Villanova. Well, my, be- my best friend in Philadelphia, he... Uh, He's a West Virginia fan, and they got knocked out by Villanova, and so they. Oh, so it's a Vill- grudge. Villanova's so it's grudge the, That's right. That's right. They're the right. villains of this tournament. It's, it's a very temporary grudge. I'll get over it by next tournament because I really don't care. <laughs> How about you? But Where are you on I, this I like that, Sh- that Shane, Shane's NCAA basketball allegiance is West Virginia. That makes me happy. Yeah. this is not what you expect. I mean, from this a, year at least, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's is that how quickly your loyalties? Well, I, it's you know, I, I, no, I mean, I'll they sure, were I'll, fun to pull for. Yeah, the, the big the Big Twelve did very well in this yeah. tournament. Um, I, you know, I'm happy. That I'm sorry to say, Duke got knocked out. I mean, well, I everybody hates time. Duke. That's they seem to be like the Lakers or something like Unfortunately, that. Unfortunately, Kansas of, of knocked them out, which is like the almost the second oh, most I hated see. school. I see. I'm having a hard time getting. Up yeah, you're going to have to break down the hatred power rankings for me sometime, just so I know what. Well, who not to cheer for at least accidentally I mean, some year. Duke, Duke. I mean, Duke. I think is obvious. Patriots. Everybody hates Duke. They're I know. The oh, ouch! Ouch! Hatred I mean, power rankings. The Yankees. Let's call them the Yankees here. Uh-huh. Okay. We can either one. Same thing, basically. Okay. Uh, outside NCAA, what you paying attention to? Well, spring training yeah, is coming baseball. to a close. So. Oh, my goodness. It's so very exciting. Even I'm excited about baseball Rosters now. are, are so solidifying. Uh, people are being the added Adams to the... they playing games tomorrow. Tommy Johns are starting. Tommy Johns are starting. The pitchers <laughs> are dropping out. Yeah. <laughs> really? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's a, you know, there's always like... Season-ending um, injuries. Yeah, there's uh, Tommy John. You know, there's kind of like almost like you know, betters market and like who's the first Tommy John. How, how does Tommy games? John feel about the fact that that operation is named after him? Does anyone ask him? Can we get Tommy know. John, Matt? Can we get Tommy John on the show, please? I'm 100 percent serious. Right. I'm sure he'd come, but I, I think he probably doesn't yeah. mind it. I mean, it's not a. I mean, it's a good thing now. Yeah. No, people used to have their, they used to be done, and now because of Tommy John surgery, they right. can keep on. Playing. They have it. The, the surgery is is taking place in in, in on teenagers. Yeah, right. We right, heard all right, about right. that when we spoke to Rick last. Hey, I heard an interesting stat over dinner last night. So, you know, preseason stats probably mean as much in baseball as they do in football, meaning absolutely nothing. But, Effectively nothing, yeah. But apparently my, at some point Mike Trout had 44 at-bats and hadn't struck out. Wow. So tell me, are, how impressed are you by that, that? I mean, that's that's an impressive statistic. In spring, in spring training? or Yeah, spring training. Okay. Well, I can so, tell you that... Yeah, in a regular season stretch, how impressive would that be? 30 strikeouts in a season is considered very low. Okay. And how many at-bats? And, and so this is... So so at-bats, they'll have 500, 500 but plate yeah. appearances, which I think is probably what you're talking about, 44 plate appearances in a row okay. without striking yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, right, right. They'll be closer to 650, 700 in plate appearances. And you say 30 out of so 700 30 out of is 600 super is super low. So that's a pretty unusual. Going 44 without striking out is a long stretch. Well, yeah. give me now in expectation, just do that number for me real quickly. You, if, if it were, in, yeah, like what the average number of strikeouts? So 20, if uh, someone, an incredible, a typical stretch for, for a, a hitter as good as Mike Trout would be about 20. Yeah. So forty is double that. So it's about. He, I mean, he I, probably I guess, does that. He probably does that twice a season. He's not going to face. He's going to face better pitching in the yeah, in the regular okay. season, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. season than he would have in spring training. So that sort of makes it slightly less impressive, but still very impressive. I, when I think about these things, I think about the uh, is who are the great 
the, I think there was one Yankee and one Red Sox who just didn't swing and miss at pitches. I'm not talking about Ted Williams. I'm talking about I was going to say uh, like Bill Mattingly didn't. era. And who, Don Mattingly. Don, 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 Don Mattingly struck out extremely infrequently. But not even it's like he didn't swing and miss. It wasn't. It was right. like that's that's that. Like right. he, they, they had single digits for the number of times in a season he would swing and miss the ball. So so Michael Trout. Mike Trout is like an old style hitter. In the sense that that Joe DiMaggio didn't strike out very much, uh, Don Mattingly didn't strike out, R- Rod Carews didn't strike out much. The great hitters, George Brett, didn't strike out much. And they Wade hit Boggs. Wade, Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs is also yeah. You were you were talking about. See, the Red Sox, see how I avoided the Red Sox is amazing. Well, all right. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> he also played for the Yankees. If that makes he did, you but better. it's uh, it's 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 an old style of of of, of hitting instead of these sort of swingy long uppercuts that drive the ball huge distances. These guys are, are – Mike Trout is one of the few people still hitting that traditional way, but he's so strong. And some would, of course, argue the ball is so lively mm-hmm. um, for a variety of different reasons that he still hits for you know, decent power. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. So what, what are the storylines in baseball that you're most interested in? Speaking of Trout, it makes me think about this pitcher that the Angels Otani is going to be one that I'm very excited to see. We're watching you know, Whether it. he actually like – you know can kind of make it basically as both a pitcher and hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that would be – that's fascinating. So the, so the Angels, spring was disappointing. He was disappointing? Yeah. And what – in pitching or hitting? Uh, hitting. Well, it, pitching was erratic. I mean, he was fast. I mean, yeah. the thing about Japan is the ball is a little smaller. Yeah. Really? And the parks are a little smaller. And there's a there's a whole industry forecasting from Japan to the, to the United States. It's a mm. – it's a – this Umpires are also more pitcher friendly in Japan as well. Wow. Like 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 marginal things are more likely to be called strikes. Interesting. Yeah. But the guy throws a hundred miles an hour, and that's no. forecastable. He's got movement on his pitches, okay. and he seems to be a genuine hitter. Mm-hmm. So he comes to the American League. I mean, to the American League in, in spring, and he just doesn't have a great spring. Okay. But it's spring. Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's a it's a forecaster's dilemma. Spring only like, matters for the people who are on the margins and you know don't make the team or not. Right. I mean, the actual predictive power of, of, yeah, of spring right. performance for it's people very who are guaranteed to make the team. Are, 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 is, How yeah. does that translate into, like, the first month of the season? Are, are people still essentially ramping up? Do, are the stats much less predictive in the first month of the season than later months? Uh, I mean, Good I think question. You, Yeah, I mean, th- I, th- I think some people kind of come in, like, kind of cold or whatever type of thing, like, either <laughs> literally in the case of players playing yeah, in Boston or, or just right. figuratively. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, certainly pitching. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the dynamics of sort of you know pitching early, is much more early spring erratic. baseball. It, pitching is much more erratic, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, part mm-hmm. of that is weather, you know, because mm-hmm. again, like if it's you know thirty two degrees and like freezing rain or something like that in Fenway Park, it's going to be difficult to pitch in those right. conditions. Pitchers have far more in- intra season variation than than hitters. Yeah. Is that right? Do we yeah. know why? Well, I mean. It's hard to say. I mean, people talk about it as how how some days the ball moves and others it just doesn't. I don't think anyone. This is something to ask our ask our we should ask our experts. We don't know what it is. I mean, what is about your arm, about your your physicality, how much sleep you had, your that causes some days to be spectacular and others not. But this is well documented. I mean, it's a real effect. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it could be. I I mean, one very naive hypothesis is that there's more mechanic. You know, the mechanics of pitching are that much more complicated than the mechanics of hitting and so it's hard to kind that's of sync naive, that up that's not a naive that's that's, that's nice there's that's, that's just yeah. it's more it's more moving parts involved yeah. so we 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 did get a question from a listener about baseball who asked me in person um asked specifically how does it how does forecasts preseason in baseball compare to say forecast preseason in basketball and football 
So we're not like sitting power there rankings and of sort teams of, or individual no, players. Uh, no, not a team on the team level. Okay. So we're trying to forecast which eight teams are going to yeah. be competitive at the yeah. end. If we do that in football, what fraction? What fraction of the question. of the teams that we forecast will make it in basketball and 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 and, and football? So my my intuition, I'll just talk about. I think that there's uh, in baseball has less forecastability than the than the previous two than the other two sports, basketball and football. Hmm. But it's still pretty good. It's not it's not horrendous. That there's typically about if you t- pick eight teams, you'll you'll um, four are you'll get four for sure. Right. And I think in, with football, this, this, your reasoning about this was so principle free. It's so interesting. You're reasoning about it like the way the basketball announcers reason about the sixteen well, just, being a one, which is fine. Yeah. But it's surprising me from yeah. coming from Audi. I would have thought you'd go to. Well, I don't have a model. Well, so, we, well, the intuitions, it. it would come from like the games are 50-50, but they play more of them. So the games that's are right. less diagnostic, yeah, so they I, play I, more right. of them. So, I, I, I mean, because it's really two things. Like, you know, it, are, there mecha- are there structures in the sport that allow te- like certain teams to be very dominant, actually talent-wise, over yep. other teams? That's one part of it. And do, does the season, is the season long enough, or is there some kind of, you know, structure in the season such that those... When you have a, a, a more talented team, do they actually predictably rise to the top? And I think, I mean, I think it's obvious that basketball is very predictable for both, on, predictable on both those measures, yeah. right? There are structures. The actual sport itself are such that certain teams have a dominant amount of talent. And the season is long enough whereby those teams do rise to the top. So basketball, I think, it must be the most predictable. Um, I would actually say... Uh, I would actually argue that baseball is more predictable than football on the on this, just because I think you know the parity that's sort of season. forced in football, um, as well as the shortness of the season, says that that's the most unpredictable compared to baseball. Okay, so, let's, I mean, so let's, let's you take, know you could probably study that, that analytically. That, it could go either way. Both your answers are, are reasonable and helpful. Let's look at what people are saying about yeah. this year's baseball season. I just pulled up fan graphs real quick. And you said which eight teams? So just looking top to bottom, not not by division and league, just who's projected to win the most games. The first thing that jumps out to you is that not only are the Astros projected to win the most games, well, one, it's a very large number for a projection. Projections are usually regressive, and Fangraphs has Astros winning 100 games, but also that it's five more games than the next team. So there's a real separation there. At the top, They're, I'm gonna get. Let me read them all, then get your reactions. Yankees at 95, Indians 94, Cubs also at 94, Dodgers and Red Sox at 93, and then a bit of a drop off. The next team that comes in is the Nationals at 89. So there's kind of a distinct top six teams there: Astros, mm-hmm. Yankees, Indians, Cubs, Dodgers, Red Sox. So if you think about eight, the top eight, and that's why I, I always like to think about it. I mean, in baseball, it's basically there's. Four in the finals in each division, and well, there's a wild card game. What fraction of the eight are going to actually that are being forecast will mm-hmm. actually be in the eight? Yeah. And I think the I think the number is about fi- between fifty and around fifty to sixty percent. Okay, so four of those teams are going to make it for sure, yeah. and four will probably be replaced by four others. And okay. I, and I just point to football, and I think <laughs> if you made that same sort of you know four team prediction or five six team prediction in either conference of football, the fraction would be even less. I mean, look at like what happened last year. No, every single division winner in 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 the NFC was a team that was you know did not make the playoffs the previous year. Right, right, right. Okay. So there we there wow. we have one fact for example. All right, good fun. Well, the real games start tomorrow. Should be a interesting couple of interesting stories. We'll come back to lots of baseball, of course. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies, faculty colleagues, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Our fourth collaborator, Eric Bradlow, is out this week. He will be back. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866, give us a ring or drop us a note. Email businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. You can ask questions on Twitter for that matter. Our handle on Twitter is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall. Give us a ring. We are just out of uh, open conversation, mostly about machine learning, yeah. a little bit of basketball, NCAA basketball, and Baseball. We're talking baseball because open day is tomorrow. My colleagues are rabid, ra- I don't, I, raised, I, steeped in baseball. Yeah. This it's new, right? That this opening opening days happen on like a Thursday. I no. mean, I thought I thought there was usually one game on a Sunday, and then we all started it off on a Monday. Is that not? No, right? I don't think that that's that's. I think baseball has always started midweek. Okay, but it is earlier and earlier. I, I, all right. So to to clarify, maybe Getting not my that, but brain Swiss cheese. I guess I don't know. <laughs> that's right. That's what happened, to Shane. Ugh. We're gonna we're gonna talk a little more baseball with someone who knows it. Brendan Harris, a frequent guest of the program, in studio usually. Right now he's working, so he cannot be in studio. But Brendan is a current student in our executive MBA program, about to graduate actually, and a former league baseball player. He played for multiple teams, including the Twins and the Rays. He was a middle infielder, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. A lot of time at shortstop. We've we've watched some of his dingers on the on the TV here while he's in studio. Good fun. We're always delighted to have Brendan. Brendan, welcome back to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. Delighted to have you. You're, is it Arlington where you are right now? What's going on with yeah, you? Yeah, just right out right outside DC. Yep. Well, um, yep. what tell us a little bit about how your what's going on with your life as the league ramps up because you've got some responsibilities with the Angels, but you've also got. Student responsibilities, you're not quite done with Wharton yet. How are you balancing these things, and what does it look like for you as you roll into the actual season? Uh, very very delicately, yeah. It's been uh, two full-time jobs for about two years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we just wrapped up spring training, had some uh, some advanced work uh, down in Florida, and uh, the half of Port Shane, the, the, the Red Sox are, are looking very strong. Nice. Um, should, should roll into a good year. Brennan, not, hold not on. as strong as the Halos. But, um, well, of course but, not. Uh, of course not. I and mean, how do the Yankees fit in that list there, Brendan? <laughs> Pretty good. I mean, Pretty they're good. Gonna, they're going to score a ton of runs. Um, and uh, so, obviously, health is a, is a big thing. But but I think uh, I think they need some good moves, some under-the-radar moves. I'd like the Brandon Drury move for them. Um, and uh, we'll see. I didn't see a ton of them, but but certainly they, they, they've generated most of the headlines, especially down in Florida. Brendan, your responsibilities with the Angels fall under the headline player development. Some folks may not know what player development means. What, is it, what, what does that mean for you? What, what are you doing on a, on a weekly basis for the Angels? Right, so I'll, I'll head around and I'll meet uh, all our minor league teams. I'll work with our guys and, and kind of from an evaluation point of view, um, kind of kind of um, fill reports in on them, but also work with them, get on the field, um, you know, in the cage, work with them with their approach, Some, you know, kind of, uh, another set of eyes, certainly for the for the hitting coach, infield uh, coordinators, um, at, at kind of my expertise a little bit, and just just try to work and develop these guys to make them um, successful in the, the kind of current year, and then and then moving forward. 
um, and, and so that they can be kind of a, a ultimately a successful major leaguer. Can you give us an example, without naming a name, but can you give us an example of some work, just like some concrete things you've done with a player during spring training where you've seen him evolve and you've seen your work with him make progress even just in the last month? Yeah, especially uh, there was a guy we had two years ago, especially an infielder, where I just uh, his it was, it was odd. It was a really uh, quick uh, kid who just w- was not getting good jumps off the bat, and it was, a lot of it was a setup. And then he had, um, it, it, if you were calling almost a hitch in kind of his fielding, he would kind of pat uh, at the la- at late in in kind of his approach to the ball, and that that would get him kind of locked up, and he would catch balls too deep, and he would kind of mess up his rhythm moving moving. Uh, forward and through the ball, and, uh, and it, it, it affects kind of the timing timing of play. So just kind of getting his hands out front and, and affecting his kind of prep step and affecting his setup position mm-hmm. uh, was something that's a very, very small tweak, and but but it kind of un- unlocked uh, his uh, kind of athletic ability a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's it been like for you to transition from being a player, because you were playing just a couple of years ago, into being a coach? What ha- What have you had, what have you grappled with as you've made that transition? I, you know, it, it is interesting. Uh, you, you just—I think you don't think of yourself in your identity of somebody that's on this side of the game now. You still kind of walk into the clubhouse and like there's this <laughs> part of you that wants to check the lineup and right. uh, and think like you know maybe I'm still in there. But um, I, I think uh, it's just a different point of view. You got to look. Uh, you're looking for different things. There, there is a, a definite skill set to an evaluation in terms of projecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, when you're looking at guys who have physically haven't developed yet, so you have to kind of isolate um, uh, what what they're doing and the processes a, a little bit more, mm-hmm. and, and then kind of get to us from a speculative point of view. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Brendan Harris. Brendan is an executive MBA here at Wharton, but also a formerly baseball player and still working with the Los Angeles Angels in player development. You just mentioned processes. This is something that the analytics community has become more and more aware of that. Processes are essentially more predictive than outcomes. So the, 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 as the analytics have advanced, they've kind of pushed deeper and further and further upstream from mm-hmm. what happened once the ball was put into play, for example, to what happened you know, while the batter was putting the ball into play. Can you talk about this transition? Are there, are there process stats and process analytics that especially have your eye these days? Absolutely, and that's kind of what, what I've been looking at, and, and certainly the outcome-oriented metrics have been looked at at nauseum. And each team looking at the same data has a lot of smart people doing it. Uh, so what we're looking at now is the process-oriented stuff and how predictive they are of success, and then ultimately how those are going to contribute to runs. So to drill down a little bit deeper, so ultimately we're looking for guys that are going to hit the ball hard, hit for power, and control the zone. And so we're looking for the things that they're doing that are going to optimize their exit velo, their launch angle, and their chase percentage. And so when you drill down into kind of the fundamentals in a um, brief sense, you're, going to, you're, you're essentially looking to create momentum and leverage in the swing and, and, and ultimately to hit the ball hard and to hit the ball far. And then you also you want to um, get the barrel behind the ball and get your hands above the barrel as soon as possible. So, so what we're going to do – go ahead. Okay, let me just ask one clarifying question, then Adi is dying to jump in here. But you're talking about things that probably have been talked about for, you know, decades, I'm guessing. But mm-hmm. but given, I'm going to guess that you have cameras that tell you these things much more precisely than ever before. So when you say, you know, hands behind the, which, whatever you Control just, the zone, well, right? No, no, but, you, but even deeper than that, you're talking, yeah. about, you're talking about swing mechanics, 
because mm-hmm. now you understand what swing mechanics translate into, for example, exit velocity. So you're talking about swing mechanics, but in the past, you know, Don Mattingly sitting around as a hitting coach or someone, he's just kind of naked eyes. The guy got his hands in the right place at contact. Is it right that you have the benefit of you know, high speed camera and computer modeling of exactly where hands are relative to the barrel at any given point in time? Is that the kind of process measure you're talking about? A little bit, but this is ultimately, as kind of people talk about, the fusion of the data, the traditional scouting methods, and the technology. So whether it's whether it's cameras that can say, hey, or, or just stopping it and seeing where your hands are, where the barrel is at the point of contact, yep. um, when the pitch is coming in, where they're set up, where, where they are pre-pitch, where they are when the pitcher's, pitcher's foot lands, um, to seeing how have they started shifting their weight, have they started generating that kind of energy or momentum going back, um, where's their front foot landing? Is that front foot open? Is it clearing so that you can create torque? And so that's where we're kind of trying to fuse these different things and, 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 and almost give, them, give us a more predictive analysis of what's going to uh, lead to success. So, Brendan, um, we've been working on some of this uh, data accumulation ourselves. and By we, you mean me, I mean, I mean Adi Adi and, and Brendan, exactly. But we haven't actually – one of the things that I, I want to stand back and say, let's say the, the purpose of the project is exactly as you described. I mean, to try to figure out wh- how those different factors actually translate into performance. But I want to take a step back and ask a, a question which I, I've never asked of you, and I think we, and many people would be interested. Let's say we discover those factors, call them a set of things that really matter and a set of things that don't. Are you going to try with, with players to find players who do that or try to make players who will do that? Do you see the, the dis- distinction? One, is it really intervention-based? Are we looking for things that we can change in hitters? Or are you filtering? Or, or are we just going to filter and look at the people who do it? Yeah. So a little bit of both. So first, I think I would say primarily you're looking for guys that do these things. And then second, from a troubleshoot point of view, um, a lot of it in, in terms of our it, – it's evolved in how the swing's been taught. A lot of things have been subje- a little bit of subjective of he's – his foot's down late, and why is so-and-so hitting too many ground balls, right? And and why is he not being able to get to his backside with leverage and hit at, at an uphill angle? So mostly it's going to be the target guys um, that are doing these things, and um, where, where traditionally if you're looking at the outcome-oriented metrics, you'd say, oh, this guy's got a high exit below, but his launch angle's low, so we find some undervalue there. If we make some tweaks in that, we can, we can increase his home run. So this, it, it's going to drill down into is, it, is his hand position here? Is he, is he not doing a, a backside kind of row to generate that kind of leverage and, and create a, um, a swing path that's going to be conducive to this? So there is some development aspect to it, and and I did want to actually for myself to challenge some of the conventional wisdom things. Uh, certainly, as we, we talked about a little bit about um, before about swing plane, whether hitting down on the ball, hitting through the ball, or hitting up, uh, in terms of what what it's been taught and how it's been changed over the last few years. But in terms of like getting the foot down early, th- that's something that was always taught. Certainly, was taught to me. But then I look at a guy, one of my contemporaries, that was one of my favorite people to watch, was Robinson Cano, who had this hang, who kind of you could argue his foot was down late, but he had such a beautiful weight shift and weight transfer and hanging leg kick that foot got down late so it, it, it's it's not kind of a cookie cutter way to to troubleshoot things we want to see the the most um predictive things uh, that are going to give us the outcomes that we're looking for so brian one of the things that really intrigues me about the kind of i would call it almost a not analysis pipeline that you and audi are setting up here is 
Mm-hmm. You're obviously looking at these kind of high resolution, you know, kind of physical movement factors um, with with kind of some kind of performance measures the outcome. You want to kind of come up with the combination that really predicts well performance. I've always kind of thought that this type of thing could really be useful for for injury prevention as well, or for injury, you know, essentially for diagnosing what type of physical activities are more frequently leading to injury. Is that something that you've kind of thought about is like kind of taking the same analysis pipeline, but with the outcome being, you know, predicting whether or not a player gets injured? Because I think that would be very valuable to teams. A hundred percent. And I, I actually, in, in terms of the new frontier of terms of like analytics and, and um, uh, technology is going to be, you're going to mix wearable technology mm-hmm. with yeah. with some of these things, particularly with pitchers, I think, um, because I think team, teams are looking at it. For a guy, if you can't keep him on the field, then there, there's, there's absolutely no value there. And so they're going to have to look at certainly body motion analysis and in terms of how they're using balance, how they're generating power. Um, and uh, in, in terms of it, in the swing, and then also certainly in a mechanical point of view from uh, a pitching and uh, pitching motion and, and stress on the arm and um, and things of that nature. So, Brandon, I want to ask you about um, this this uptick in home runs. So, since middle of 2015, home runs are up 45 percent. We had Rob Arthur on a couple weeks ago from ESPN, and he described how that much of that. Um, increase can be attributed to a number of changes in the balls, but that still leaves, amazingly, at least about half of it, which is attributable to no one really quite understands why. So let's just leave the the ball issue off the table and ask you as a as a as a scout as a development, what has happened in the last three years, if anything, that can explain this enormous increase in home runs other than the ball, and is it really due to what people are talking about this change in mechanics this this uh, and this upper cup swing and how did that happen? I mean, how yeah. did and how, how actually did it happen? So there's a couple things. I'm, I haven't bought into the ball. I think that, that that'd be a little bit of a bridge too far. But there's a couple things, in my opinion, that go uh, that are account for it. First of all, is approach. Um, you, you're you you are seeing the the launch angle change and more guys, um, you know, with, with a little bit more loft to their swing. Yes, but you're seeing, and I'd like to get your opinion. Do we see more two strike home runs than we've seen ever seen before? You're seeing guys that uh, teams teams have made it known that they're okay. Um, there's a certain amount of strikeouts that are palatable for them in exchange mm-hmm. for home runs. So you're seeing guys sit on those one two sliders and just go for the downs. Um, so I think so. I think that's part of it. The other thing is um, zone discipline. Zone discipline has been stressed constantly from all the from from top to bottom. And so when you think about it, when you expand the zone, your mechanics break down of the, of the swing. So you're fundamentally not going to be able to hit the ball as hard or as far. Which are, when you're only swinging at balls that you can essentially drive out of the park, and that's in a lot of times it's a terminology that's kind of expressed to these players, like, hey, if you can't drive this ball off the wall, then it's not a pitch that you need to be swinging at. Hmm. So when you do that over five, six hundred ABs, all you really need, you know, you, you can easily see how there's going to be five or six more home runs per guy, and so you know, twenty the the twenty five home run guys now thirty thirty one, and then you do that across the board, and and I think that that's going to have an effect. So when you were coming up and you were a young minor leaguer or a college player in your you know, 10, 15 years ago, 
these things weren't talked about. I mean, this is a real live difference that you can actually articulate. And um, you never moved up levels. You had to hit 300 to move up a level. And and I've talked about that. Like the 300 batting average is now the 370 on base percentage Hmm. um, in terms of what's valued. And certainly, hey, if you you can, and, and same with the 500 slugging percentage. So if you can just continually drive balls in the gap, control the zone you will move up as opposed to you used to have to hit 300 which kind of puts you in the mindset of is a walk really is a walk really that valuable to me I, you know i can expand the zone a little bit and poke that ball to right so when you do that maybe a hundred of your at bats uh, over the course of the year you're going to have a lot of those kind of as you say ass out kind of reaching for balls that you know kind of poke into the right field the rod crew hits from from yesteryear yeah that you're and you're not staying tall on the ball and driving them in the gap brendan we often hear ex-players talk about how you know soft current players are how how much better they were back in the day it must be different for baseball players because analytics are so much further advanced and they're you know changing the way guys bat changing the way guys swing you're only a few years out of the game how do you think your game would have been different? How do you think your batting stats would have been different if you had come up 10 years later? I, I, it would have all been approach. I probably would have because um, I, I had more of a spread out stance and I felt like that gave me the most play coverage. So I probably would have narrowed my stance a little bit and then just approach, um, you know, not, certain things uh, in terms of reaching for balls and in terms of, um, what what I was looking at, I probably would have sat on more pitches um, to to look to drive, um, and certainly those counts where it's, you know, hey, that two one that slider's coming, you know, maybe sit on that a little bit differently. I, I think, you know, I don't, I think the game is harder than it's been. Um, I, I, you know, scouting reports are they're so detailed, the shifts are so detailed, it's harder mm-hmm. to hit three hundred than it ever has been before. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're facing more specialists, you're facing guys. Um, you know, uh, everybody throws a cutter, you know, and, and, and they're moving both sides of the plate. And then the velocity has just gone through the roof. You're seeing everybody's got three to four guys that are 95 plus. So I, I don't think it's any easier um, mm-hmm. by, by, by any sense. Mm-hmm. Brendan, we're talking to Brendan Harris. Brendan is an executive NBA here at the Wharton School, former Major League Baseball player, working still in player development for the Angels. We, we've, we were talking in the first half hour about storylines in this upcoming season, and it's hard to, I mean, real high on the list, anybody's list, are the Angels for two reasons. You know, you've had Trout all these years, and people are kind of sad that he's not in the playoffs more, but now you've got a second reason for, 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 the, for the casual fan to pay attention to the Angels. You've got this new two-way player. What can you tell us out of the Angels camp? How do people feel about the season? What, what storylines do you think we should be paying attention to? So uh, Otani certainly he, he's been impressive. He's still um, one thing is he's old, he's only 23 years old, and I, th- I, I think the uh, we had so many young players from whether it was Miguel Cabrera coming at the 20, Mike Trout coming in at 20, and so now and, and certainly when you look at NFL guys coming into the league 22, 23, they, they hit the ground running. I think he, he he still has some growing pains, but I think he's got a, a tremendous upside. He's just a, just looking at him. He's a young big kid. So I think he's got a huge upside. He had a few few growing trains in spring training, but I, I think he's going to be fine getting since the year. Mm-hmm. Our, our under-the-radar things are, are certainly Garrett Richards is healthy, a true number one. Um, we have uh, Justin Upton in the left field. We're going to have Ian Kinsler. We're going to have Cozart. Um, I, I think we have the best defensive infield in, in Major League Baseball. Oh, wow. and, uh, and certainly the um, – 
uh, obviously best player in the game. So I, I think I think it's going to be a really really good year for us. Um, and certainly Mike Trout's going to be Trout. We're going to have uh, Cole Calhoun. I think is going to have a bounce back year. And, and certainly, like I said, uh, Justin Upton's presence is going to be a real real kind of under the radar thing uh, for us. Brendan, what 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 difference does it make in player development to have a Mike Trout on your roster? Do people do people try to learn from him, or do people feel like he's a different species and so they can't learn from him? Um, he, he is such a physical specimen. Um, but one thing you will learn is, um, uh, he plays the game hard. He, he's one of those guys. He, he is a little bit of a quieter guy. Um, but his, he comes to play, he's accountable and he, 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 you know, he gets his work in. And so in that sense, he leads by example. And, uh, so there's really no complaints when you get a guy or, or, or people saying, oh, well, this guy, you know, one of the worst things in the world is to have a great player that's kind of lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of on their own program. And Mike is very, very much one of the guys and, and kind of leads by example a little bit. Got it. All right, Brendan, we're going to have to wind down, but I'm, I'm curious as a, as a former player, especially in spring training, do you get a chance to, to, to hit swing the bat? Do you shag flies? Do you, do you, do you, do you throw around? What do you, do you indulge that at all? Can you? Uh, on, on this side of the game? No. Uh, I, I have in, in, when I, when I was out in, uh, um, Arizona farm meetings, um, I'll, I'll kind of get on the field a little bit and, and just play catch and, and, uh, but at, at the same time, it's still still too soon uh, to be out there okay. like every day. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, so I do want I do like to be around it a little bit. It is fun to kind of hear the crack of the back, but you still kind of want to jump in the cage and grab one <laughs> and take some swings. Um, so, but but yeah, you you do get your hands dirty a little bit and, and dust the glove off. All right, man. Well, listen. Good luck getting the season off. Good luck wrapping things up here around Wharton. We hope to see you before you graduate. Appreciate it, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Brian Harris, former former Major League Baseball player, currently working player development for the Angels and an executive NBA student here at Wharton, calling in from Arlington, Virginia. That's our halfway point. We're still halfway to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Kate Massey hosting this morning with my colleagues, collaborators, co-creators of Wharton Moneyball, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. You can join our conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, producer and boss Matt Dots standing by for your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. You can add us there with questions, comments, complaints, whatever you got. We have answered questions from the Twitter world. We also follow our guests up there, so it's a good way to stay in touch with those guys. But we're more active there all the time. Not a bad way to check in, especially between now and the next live show. Just off the phone with uh, Major League Baseball, former Major League Baseball player, now shifting gears a little bit. We are welcoming to the show Frank Frigo. Frank is the chief business officer at Edge Sports. He's also the co-founder of Edge Analytics. Frank, lots to talk with you about. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. You're calling in from Louisville or founded, or you're based in Louisville. Is that right? 
We are, yes. We're based in Louisville, Kentucky. So you you came to our attention when somebody wrote an article around the Super Bowl about your consulting to the Philadelphia Eagles, and you were the secret sauce in the great decision-making that, that these guys had this past year. And then, of course, they only validated your approach to the extent that you get credit for it by a couple of controversial and successful calls in the Super Bowl. So... As we've learned more about you, though, we've learned that there's more to it than just consulting to the Eagles or even just consulting to football. Our understanding is that you've got a team of folks, physicists, mathematicians, engineers, game theorists, and that you're working not only in football and not only in sports, but beyond that. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing? And, and even to get us started, how, how did you get going in this field? Yeah, so it's got a, it's got a bit of a history to it. So um yeah, it really all started. It was rooted in in sports. So going back um, really more than a decade, one of our partners, Chuck Bauer, who's a cosmic ray physicist, he and I um, had known each other for a while, and um, we really just started dabbling as a fun project um, around decision making in football. We're both pretty serious backgammon players, and we had seen uh, a lot of advancements in what machines were doing in skill-based games and how they were really sort of overturning conventional ideas. We saw a lot of similarities to the way football decision-making was done. So we started dabbling with this project of seeing if we could better understand through simulations how football coaches make decisions. And um, it was very enlightening in that we realized that maybe that some of the decision-making that we thought was suboptimal was maybe even a bit worse. So um, – but to just fast forward a little bit, those ideas uh, we started to get some traction with, and we started thinking about just how data is captured in, in different industries and um, how there might be suboptimal decisions in, in lots of different spaces and taking kind of a game-based approach to that. So that's led us to, uh, you know, we formed Edge Analytics about five years ago in Louisville, Kentucky. Our other partner, our CEO, Sean O'Leary, previously came from the energy space um, where he had developed some proprietary data tools. And um, we kind of got together and decided that we were going to get after it uh, a little deeper into sports um, and also, uh, you know, applying these kinds of ideas into other areas as well. For instance, we have done work with fully algorithmic trading models, um, work in education, decision-making, in healthcare, um, other sports, so it's really just sort of led us on this path of um, you know, using this methodology to see what sort of insights we can drive and, and, and what value we can provide to a whole, a whole spectrum of clients. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the origin story goes to backgammon, is that right? So you, you were a, a world-class or are a world-class backgammon. What, what does it take to be that successful at backgammon? Um, so so back in, yeah, so I've, um, I've been playing for, for quite some time, and, and Chuck, the physicist I mentioned, is also a player. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different aspects to it. It's obviously it's a, it's a very mathematical game, um, especially when you play tournaments. Um, and it's also a game that really sort of tests your ability to deal with chaos um, because the dice are you know, constantly throwing a lot of upheaval into your decision-making. So you mm-hmm. really have to sort of be level-headed um, in terms of recognizing that the situation changes and you have to assess it at each stage on the new information that's provided and make mm-hmm. the most optimal decision with that. So that is very analogous to trading decisions, for instance, um, and which is why a lot of uh, trading firms and funds recruit folks that have poker and bridge and backgammon uh, backgrounds because mm-hmm. that is it's very... Um, 
analogous to the way decision-making is made in training. So there's a mathematical component to it. There's a pattern recognition component to it. There's uh, certainly a temperament component to it, which is to be able to sort of, you know, not uh, overly focus on what just occurred, but what is in front of you, what's at hand, how does this information apply to your next decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a multivariable approach to that. Uh, there's a lot of in- new information at each decision that you've got to that you have to apply. And, uh, you know, that does really tie in very well with uh, football decision-making because football, each play, each snap is kind of a new decision with a new set of variables. So that was why this was a very interesting space for us. Right. It it seems like a pretty clear mapping. It's certainly certainly the way the decision theorists have thought about football. It's a pretty, it's it's a really nice analogy from the way you've described backgammon to football. And we want to hear more about what you're doing there, but first, what, now that you've been working with teams for a while and been modeling what happens in that world a while, what do you think the analyst misses, for better or worse, when they do map it so so parsimoniously? It's a it's a playing field with some with the situation that translates directly into an odds of success, and therefore there's an optimal decision to be made here. It we we simplify things too much, of course, because we have to. What have you learned about what you can simplify and what you can't simplify as you've made that translation from backgammon to football? Yeah. Um, I mean, you obviously have to make some assumptions, right? There's um, Clearly. Yeah, there, there's a lot of good empirical data that gives you some indication of a team's success rate and the distribution of outcomes, at least historically in different situations. But that obviously can change quite a bit based upon the skill sets of the teams and how they match up. So you have to to understand how much uncertainty there is around that um, and, and how much that can, you know, that can sort of shift um, decisions, which, again, is very similar to sort of decision-making in backgammon because in backgammon you also have to account for uh, skill differences between opponents and how that might, mm-hmm. might shift your decisions. Um, I mean, I think that some of the challenges with going into this space are – like any area where there's new technology that comes into it, there's people anchor on conventional wisdom. They, they anchor on conventional metrics. So um, we came from a world where it's all about win probability. You're not really concerned with score difference. You're concerned about making decisions that give you optimal win probability. Right. So I think um, for a lot of coaches, they traditionally look at, well, how often do we convert a first down? What's our expected points or our success on this particular drive where our modeling approach is saying it's all about win probability. We're simulating this game to an outcome. And if you fail, what does that mean? How do those iterations all sort of weigh into your decision? If you succeed, what does that mean? So football was um, particularly interesting because, because of the clock and because of the increments of scoring, um, I think that it creates a greater complexity in some ways in in-game decision-making than a game like baseball, because in baseball you're generally trying to produce runs and keep your opponent from producing runs, where in football, um, because of the scoring increments and because of the decaying clock, uh, point utility shifts dramatically. So you can get into situations that you know, early in the game would seem very clear, but now at a, at a later stage yeah. or at a different score, your point utility changes dramatically, so, and it really shifts the way you think about the game from a win probability perspective. Right. You're saying there's a there's a greater wedge between uh, an expected points approach and an expected win probability approach 
in football than other sports, and especially in football in late game decision making. Mm-hmm. So hence, Absol- hence the value absolutely. of bringing this this different perspective. Yeah. So I was uh, uh this is Adi Weiner. I, I'm actually trying to to write a, a whole article that. that that gives examples of this. So in just to recap what, what you just said and what Cade reiterated is that there there can be very big difference between the play that maximizes expectation and the play that maximizes win probability. So in baseball, you might find a couple of those at the very end of the game. With the So for stealing could be a, a very bad decision in terms of expected value, but a very good decision in, ten, in, in, in terms of win probability. So can you give us a, maybe an example in football of exactly how this uh, plays out? And it may be a, a, an extreme example or where expected value says one thing, but, but um, win probability says something else. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, you can imagine that, um, you know, I mean, the most extreme example would be, you know, it's the last play of the game. You're on your opponent's uh, two-yard line. You're trailing by uh, two points. Um, So, um, you know, you might, or say you're on the one-yard line, you might have higher expected value in terms of points by uh, running the ball, but from a utility standpoint, from a win probability standpoint, the field goal, which you're going to convert, you know, an average NFL team, in the high 90s is going to do much better on win probability. So that's obviously the most extreme case of the gap between expected points and win probability. Um, but, uh, you know... There, but these are, these are ones that people knew about, right? So that's not an obvious... Yeah. So what would be yeah, something that's yeah. at least... Oh, sure. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of situations where teams march down the field. They're at fourth and short, deep in opposing territory. And... Um, they, you know, from a, a risk aversion bias, they're going to take the field goal because it's the highest expectation of getting something on the drive, some points on the drive. But from a win probability perspective, what the model's picking up on is, um, you know, what happens when they fail? What's the resulting ball position? How does that then result in more favorable uh, position for them down the road? Mm-hmm. Um, and the immediate ex- expected points. So, um, it, you know, situations like that um, can be very counterintuitive to the way coaches traditionally think about mm-hmm. the game because mm-hmm. they might be thinking about maximizing points on the drive, but the model's picking up that you're actually getting much higher win probability by a more uh, uh, aggressive action. And we see those as being pretty chunky differences in win probability. It's not unusual to see, you know, double-digit. Our metric that we refer to all the time is GWC, game winning chance, so... In situations like that, it's pretty common to see errors that cost teams over 10% oh game-winning chance. It's, wow. It's, wow. Really, it's very, very significant. So, Frank, can you elaborate a little bit on this? Because you said, you said as you were describing how you got into this, you said one thing. If you phrase it the way you meant it, I'm very curious. You said we modeled coaches' decision-making. You, you didn't first model optimal decisions. You, got, you modeled their decisions, which is interesting. And then you characterized it as even worse than you expected. So can you tell us a yeah. little bit more about, is that true? You not only tried to understand optimal, but you tried to understand, you tried to literally model what they were doing, and then you found that it was worse than you thought it would be. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the underlying simulation model um, is our best assessment of how coaches typically behave and make decisions. And when we let the, when we let the model go and, and simulate a game, it's, uh, it's, repli- it's replicating common decision-making. Then we have the ability on top of that to examine different types of decisions. Um, I, you know, when I say that they were doing worse than we originally expected, I, I think we would have thought that coaches were giving up about a quarter to a half game a season in aggregate GWC. 
Um, we started to look at this much more closely. We saw that it was actually north of uh, of half a game, okay, um, into the two thirds to three quarters area, and and that's on really fourth down decision making alone, which is where a lot of the the, the bigger equity right uh, differences are. Uh, but there's also a lot of this that goes on in PATs in kickoff decisions, that, um, and then when you think about um, setting up for fourth downs in terms of third down decision making. I think you know right. the example that we talk about with the Eagles is once you know that you're going to behave optimally on fourth downs and you understand the value of that, it sets things up very differently on third down. Right. Because now you know if you have a third and eight and you're only picking up five or six yards and you know you're going to go for it on fourth down. It opens up your play options and makes you a little less predictable on some of those third down decisions. And that's a great example of what you were talking about initially about this, you know, sort of disparity between what is, you know, kind of optimal, say, for example, early in the game versus like having the game context really change what's optimal. I mean, no, you know, early in the game, if you've got like a set a third and eight, there's no way you're going to run a running play right in order to be. Because you just don't feel like you're going to have be able to pick up eight yards. But if you know that you're setting up a fourth down, if you know you're going to use your fourth down, then all of a sudden, you know, a running play on third and eight is is, is perhaps the optimal move. Yeah, it, it it could very well be. I mean, you know, there's certainly some artistry to that with the coaches kind of reading the defense and seeing what's available. But mm-hmm. but just the idea that some of those options are more open. Um, it makes you a lot less predictable, too. I mean, I think that's another issue is, you know, coaches have a lot, you know, teams have a lot of tells and predictability in certain situations. Um, you know, I think that's that's something that we've seen in the past is teams will treat fourth and short situations like novelties and they'll they'll line up, you know, with a quarterback sneak, whereas, you know, why? Why would you <laughs> limit yourself to all of the, the overage yardage that you might get for running more traditional plays? And why not, you know, why telegraph it as such? Right. Um, Right. It's, it's not. It's not. It's not a novelty. It's a. It's a. It's a viable decision. So treat it as such. Right. We're talking to Frank Frigo. Frank is chief business officer at Edge Sports and co-founder of Edge Analytics. They gained some profile this past NFL season with a piece about their consulting to the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, the Eagles went on to win the Super Bowl and, in fact, made some some uh, relatively bold by conventional measures fourth down decisions that that pushed that game along. Frank. Do you get into the business of evaluating different coaches? So you talked about, on average, you talked about coaches giving up something like half a game and expected half a game expected uh, in, mm-hmm. in in your game win chance over the course of a season. But that's average. Surely, teams vary. A yeah, we, we, we talk a lot about you know, so like evaluation of coaches as this kind of like frontier that we you know haven't been able to get to with analytics. It sounds like you guys have you, you got there. a tool. It's falling right 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 out of your data. How much have you looked at that? Yeah, we have, and we get asked about that a lot. So we do rank how much all teams give up across the season. The the thing that I would want to point out, though, is that there's a a circumstantial component to it. Some teams put themselves in more difficult decisions where there's more equity riding in the balance than others. So, for instance, if you look at just absolute cost, the Cleveland Browns wouldn't have looked that bad this year because they didn't have as many sort of delicate decisions where there was as much riding in the balance. But that doesn't necessarily reflect upon their overall decision making. Yeah, so we have um, been thinking about this a lot in terms of developing a coach's rating metric, and that yeah. is something that we're we're working on, which is where you know we might look at it in terms of frequency of decisions, uh, magnitude of decisions relative to what was available. So you know it might be that somebody gives up 
you know, 15% on a fourth down decision at a critical moment, you know, in overtime where there's a lot riding on that decision, but it might be somebody else at a situation when they had 3% available to them, gave up one and a half percent and gave up half of what they had. Mm -hmm. So how do you grade that fairly? And that's something that we're sort of thinking about developing our own sort of rating system for coaches. Um, And um, I think it would be a, I think it would be a very interesting, uh, very interesting thing to provide. Right. And and to, and and to elaborate beyond fourth downs into some of these other territories that, that, that do add up over time, but don't get the same attention that fourth downs do. Give us a little something. Who should we, who's the, who's the money ball coach that we should be pulling for? Maybe below the radar people now, of course, understand Doug Peterson makes aggressive fourth down calls and maybe that's a good way to go. Who, who else is on the, who's on the relatively high end of that scale as, as best as you can see right now? If you could check. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the obvious one is Belichick has traditionally, I think, kind of thought that way, yeah. understood it, understood it very well. Although I will say that, you know, this season we saw some things that that made us sort of reassess that. I mean, the AFC championship game, for instance, we had the Patriots on I think there were four decisions in that Jacksonville game where they gave up an aggregate of about 20 percent. Oh, my. Um, and so that was a little surprising. Uh, to us, but I think traditionally they've been um, they've been pretty good um, um, with it. Um, there's really a lot of parity, quite frankly. I mean, we, okay. we see it year in and year out. I, I, th- I do think the Eagles were were a considerable anomaly this year um, in terms of how they treated these kinds of decisions, and they had uh, really a buy-in from the top of the organization down to the you know all the way throughout i yeah. think to say you know if it's mathematically defensible let's do it let's not worry about the conversation in the post-game press conference let's do the right thing and it really does and, take the buy-in from the top for that to be the case i mean the 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 coach needs to know the gm has his back and the gm needs to know that the owner has his yeah back. i've but, always argued that the risk you know this this is the reason that coaches seem so risk adverse in their decision making yeah. that if they if they make an unconventional move especially in a high leverage situation and it, the uh, though and it the process work. was correct, the outcome doesn't work out. It's all on them, and right. so you know, trying to kind of basically provide them the kind of support structure or whatever where they feel comfortable making that risk adverse move or that yeah. risk tolerant. Frank, move. Frank, this is Adi Weiner. I'm really interested in in making a, a couple of connections back into your early period of of backgammon as a as a as a statistician who works in machine learning and learning theory we've seen enormous i haven't done it myself but enormous changes in a certain a certain set of games that are kind of skill based go uh, poker not so much but but um and but games like scrabble um have been really changed be- because of computers and there must have been some analysis done using learning to change the way backgammon was played and i don't need you to to talk about those i'd be interested in those sort of personally but have you learned anything using algorithms about the way football is 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 optimized in other words i mean we always know about i mean the 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 analysts know about the fourth downs and 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 we've been talking about and screaming at the television about the bad mistakes we've seen for for ages is there another layer of strategy that has been uncovered by computers in football Oh, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously there's, there's other decisions like, um, PATs, um, there's other decisions, uh, particularly around kickoff decisions. I mean, we have felt for, for quite some time that onside kicks are, um, underused, um, that there's, there's more scenarios than, um, 
than one would expect where the, they could be a, a viable alternative and, and boost equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned the third down sort of setup situations. Um, I think there, I think some of the insights, and we've seen this with other sports as well, is when you think about the world in terms of risk probability, um, you recognize that there can be greater urgency early in the games than most people realize that from a win probability standpoint, there's a greater deficit sometimes in teams recognize. I mean, everybody, you know, in basketball, they'll, they'll savor every second rolling the ball up the floor um, late in a game when they're trailing. But in the first half when they're trailing, you know, the guy's dribbling the ball, chewing gum and walking. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you see a little bit of the same thing in games like football is, you know, recognizing that there can be greater urgency at earlier stages of the game to advance the ball. I mean, what What's beautiful about our model is we can test the sensitivity of all kinds of variables. So we can recognize that in certain situations, the, the clock decaying is offsetting the advancement of yardage. So you'll see sometimes defenses giving up the middle of the field and teams, um, you know, taking yardage, but it's sort of a right. splash and burn defense. And right. what they don't realize is their win probability is actually dropping while they're advancing the ball. Because they're, they're, they're not able to stop the clock. The they don't get out of bounds to stop the clock, for example. Yeah, yeah. So they, they think they're, they might be doing something great, but they're not. I mean, another example that I would give you that's, that I think is really fascinating is um, some of the analysis that we do is not only, you know, is a more aggressive action warranted on a, on a fourth and short situation, but we can examine to a greater depth um, punting outcomes. So, for instance, you know, we'll, you referenced one of the decisions in the Super Bowl, so when the Eagles had that fourth and one at the 45. Um, for example, in a situation like that, we, we thought that was you know, right by a lot. That was double-digit. That was 12 13% to wow. do that versus the punt. Um, but even if they had had the most extraordinary punt and down the ball – at the one yard line, it still would have given up about 6% in game winning chance. So you can imagine the average NFL team, if they had a punt of that success level, they'd be high fiving and all excited about it, not fully realizing they had just given up yeah. a chunk of, of win probability. So well, that's really fascinating is to look at resulting situations and see how, you know, then in a lot of times, it doesn't matter where that punt would have been down. It, it wasn't, um, it didn't have the same value as, as the more aggressive action. Frank, you're talking about pretty antithetical approach to the game, according to many people. How is it that you've been able to get traction? And especially given that in some of these instances, others have been making this case for a while and yet gotten very little traction. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult process. I mean, we, we talked about you know getting buy-in from the top down. So fortunately, we've got some really good people on our staff, and we've got some you know we're we're networked at different levels into the college and uh, pro game. Um, I think one of the things that that we've really tried to uh, convey is that we're not coming in trying to be some robotic replacement of the decision process, even though we sort of are. But we, we, you're not, we, we, you're not yeah. leading with that. That's not yeah. the, that's not the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out of the way. There's a robot in town. Um, no, so we we respect the artistry and the experience and the wisdom that coaches have, and what we're really providing them is a vehicle to test their assumptions. And and this is an important thing that I want to mention 
is that sometimes on these decisions where our model is saying, you know, you should be going for it in your own territory on a, on a fourth and one, which happens quite often, actually, um, we allow the user to say, test our assumptions, because inevitably you're going to get counter arguments that, well, you know, we weren't moving the ball well that day, or our quarterback right. was out late last night, or the field conditions were less than ideal. There could be a right. whole slew of, of, of arguments you could create. And we allow the user to say, okay, let's test those assumptions. Right. Let's make yourself the worst uh, rushing team in the NFL. Let's make your opponent mm -hmm. the best rushing defense. Now mm -hmm. let's re-simulate it, and mm -hmm. how does that affect the decision? And the point we try to make to them is that it's nice to know that you know the more aggressive action was 12% better on average, but what's really important is that you're facing a decision, right? It's a, you're, it's a directional choice. Do you be more aggressive or do you give up possession? And whether it's 12% or 3%, you want to choose the right path more often than not. And so we allow them to test their assumptions. And what we like to tell them is that if you put in extreme assumptions that more than encapsulate any counter arguments and it doesn't flip the direction of the decision, right. that's pretty irrefutable evidence that you, you, you might be missing something. So do the right thing. Right. And I think that resonates with yeah. them a little bit more, um, that we don't sort of trot on, over trot on their territory and their assumptions. Um, we just allow them to to use it in a more meaningful way. So you'll assume, for example, that the team that's making a decision to go for it on fourth and one is maybe the worst converter, and they're up against the best defense. And even in those circumstances, it's still a very positive thing to do that no one has a counter-argument to that. Yeah, because, because um, when you make that assumption to be fair about it, that's the team that's on the field for the remainder of the simulation. So if you remember uh, some years ago, there was a very controversial decision that Belichick made. It was a fourth and two um, leading by, I think, six against the Colts, if you mm -hmm. remember this. Yeah, in his, in, his, in his own, own, uh, own territory. We talk about it all the yeah, time. In his own territory. We concurred with the decision, but the, the big counterargument on that was, well, you just can't give uh, Peyton Manning the ball back if you fail there. And, of course, he was trying not to give Peyton Manning the ball. <laughs> exactly. He was trying to retain possession. And... You know, by punting, he's definitely giving Peyton Manning the ball. He's just got to go a little bit further. So right. people tend to cherry-pick those arguments. And our point is, in the simulation, we're accounting for those things. We, you know, we can make it Peyton Manning. We can make it somebody who's not nearly as effective as Peyton Manning. And let's see what that means. Because once you make those assumptions, the model will say, fine, but that's who you are the rest of the game. Right. You can't have it that, that way. Later. You can't have it that way to rationalize this decision and not get it, you know, mm -hmm. subsequently downstream. I, I want to. I yeah. want to emphasize. I want to emphasize one thing that you've just described in this process. You're not showing up with a new card with a set of decision rules for various circumstances on the field. You're showing up with a simulation that allows those guys to interact with your advice in a much deeper way. And there's a very right. general approach there for analysts that people ought to be listening to. And, and that is to involve the person you're trying to influence in your algorithm, in your process. Let them push it around. Let them stress test it. Let them drop down into it. It's not just you're showing up with an answer. Correct. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we do. So, you know, it's a training tool. It's something that the analysts and the coaches can use and, and, and put in hypothetical scenarios. We do a very detailed post-game report that allows them to examine all their decisions and we label the ones that are high confidence that didn't survive those those counter argument scenarios that right. I described earlier. 
Uh, we also provide them game day matchups where we do an assessment pre-kickoff of kind of the comparative strengths and weaknesses of the teams as we see them. Uh, we Great do fun. A, a power index analysis. But, but yes, I mean, that's, we allow them to test assumptions, but what we do for some of the in-game um, components. So we do provide some strategy guides on certain types of decisions that can be more easily represented in a, in a two-dimensional matrix like kickoffs and PATs, for instance. Sure, sure. So what, so what we do in those circumstances is we, instead of saying, you know, this is right, this is wrong, we give them a criteria that says, in this situation, if your onside you know, kick recovery rate is 35% or greater, meaning it would need to be a surprise onside yeah. kick, um, then it's a warranted action. It becomes a profitable action. Yeah. So we're just giving them a, a criteria and saying, you're the expert on the field to be able to decide whether or not you think you know, the circumstances allow for that to be a good choice or not. And similarly with PATs, we do this with overtime fourth down decisions as well. Got it. In terms of the more complex in-game decisions around fourth downs, those have so many variables, it's a very difficult thing to represent in, you know, in a two-dimensional graph or something. But what we do there is we allow the teams to run a lot of batch scenarios. So in advance, they might run hundreds or even thousands of reference positions that they then, during the game, can sort of interpolate. They can say, oh, okay, I've, I've run scenarios with tie scores, fourth and short situations midfield. How does this one look you know, compared to this one that I've already run and this one I've already run? Okay, it's in between, and those were both goes. Maybe this is right. a go as well. Right, right, right. Frank, yeah. we're going we're gonna to have to run, but Adi has a question. Okay. He's been trying to jump in just real quickly. Real quickly, do you when you talk about um, simulating a game, are you actually – making a, a simulation of a, of a football game where every decision decision is scripted and then you run it through? Or are you dealing with models that are trying to capture all the diversity in, in, a, in a parametric form? So it is a true simulation in terms of, you know, running clock, timeouts, the, the, the comparative strengths of, of the opponents that allow for us to sort of shift the distribution curves and, the, and how the random number generation affects the, those decisions and outcomes. But um, if we run a game 100,000 times, it's 100,000 unique uh, game logs. So this yeah. is a, um, it's a full sort of forward-looking wow. simulation that we can test any kinds of assumptions on. Very, yeah. very helpful tool. I can imagine that's powerful, uh, especially to the, to the little more open-minded ownership or the more professional ownership. Frank, listen, we, have to let, we could talk to you for a long time, but we have to let you go. Appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. You bet. That was Frank Frigo, Chief Business Officer at Edge Sports, co-founder of Edge Analytics. They're doing work. We, we saw them because they're doing work in the NFL, but they're doing work in other sports and outside the world of sports, facilitating better decision making. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. That is music from sound engineer Daniel Bruno. Bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, rolling into the fourth and final quarter. Going to be open lines, open conversation. Cade Massey hosting with Shane and Adi. You can join the conversation. Jump in here and give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 7866 You can also email us. Businessradio at You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyball. You can send us questions on Twitter. You can send us suggested over-unders on Twitter. 
You can complain about our analysis and humor on Twitter at W Moneyball. We also follow all of our guests, so it's a good way to stay in touch with the world. People could possibly have. Yeah, what kind of complaints? I can't imagine. Can't imagine, Shane. Uh, We've got some business to take care of. We've got an announcement from from Twitter. Actually, Uh, one of our one of our followers up there. I need to I need to get that name, fellas. We're talking about a Carnegie Mellon conference on baseball analytics. Ron Yurko, Ron Yurko gave us an announcement. April seventh. April seventh. And Carnegie Mellon is going to host the stats department there. Is going to host a conference on baseball analytics. You can see it. You can look in, into it in more detail at um, cmusportsanalytics.com workshop. CMU, that's Carnegie Mellon University, cmusportsanalytics.com slash workshop for more information on that. We also are hearing from folks on Twitter that Tommy John, when he managed in the minor leagues, Bridgeport Bluefish, that sounds like Connecticut, right? Bridgeport's in Connecticut. Bluefish are up there in Long Island Sound. He'd sign fans' elbows before games. Tommy John apparently has a good sense of humor and some pride about having that surgery named after him. And he has, as he should, of course, because a lot of players have much, much, much more baseball in their life um, because of his pioneering uh, work as a as a patient, I suppose. Yeah. Guys, we've got a his few things. His transcending elbow, I guess, or something. That's, like that's that. right. He was trendsetting pioneer Tommy John. All right. Rolling into the last half hour, we're going to end with some over-unders. But before we end, again, you guys can throw us some suggested over-unders if you'd like. Between now and then, a few things we haven't talked about yet. I, I, you know, I told you guys I went to the to the combine a few weeks ago. Yeah, you, you mocked me a little bit. I came back to tell you it was like mocking, one of, mocking. One of the I, best was, days. I was surprised. Of, I, well, yeah, yeah. Your your enthusiasm you was a little surprising. You should be jealous. And now I yeah. did, I did another thing. I went to I went to a pro day. Okay, which is the first I get another first for me. So, so tell at, us about pro day versus combine. Yeah, I don't even the, know these things. After the combine, the universities with. NFL prospects will host pro days where they their their athletes and then other athletes prospects from the surrounding area might jump in. So if, mm. you know if you're at Texas State, you're not going to have a pro day, but they'll let you go to the University of Texas pro day. And so if, if teams fly in and, and the bigger the school, the more teams come to watch these guys play. And they do all the workouts again, but you get a you get a little more customized. So, so, so does almost everybody that does the combine also do a pro day? Or actually, the, one of the main things it does is it provides a chance for guys who don't go to the combine. Right? To yeah, no, I I, I kind of get it on that side. Uh, but the, are these are at, these things put on by the professionals or the universities? Universities. And there, it gives some discretion. These days, you'll see the top players, especially, they won't do everything at the combine. They'll say, "I'm going to throw on pro day," or "I'm not okay. going to, I'm not going to run. I'll run, I'll run on my pro day." But presumably, any player that does very well at the combine is less likely to participate Correct. in the pro day, Correct. right? Correct, and yeah. vice versa. So the the reason I was able to go is that the because it was easy to go is that University of Pennsylvania has a pro a pro prospect. So Watson Watkins. Justin Watkins, I think the, I'm, I'm going to I'm abusing that name, which is a shame. But there's a wide receiver here who is considered draft worthy. He's probably a middle to late round draft pick, and so he had his pro day here at you know University of Pennsylvania campus. It was great right. fun. Some there were probably almost I don't know two thirds of the teams had scouts there. There were five players. They brought in a couple guys from Slippery Rock and a guy from Lehigh and um, one other place. So there were five guys, and it was just fun to see the process right. at that intimate a level yeah we we got they they lifted they ran they jumped in fact the pin it sounds fascinating <laughs> it, 
Shane, I'm telling you. No, you, I mean, you laugh. Do you look no. at their teeth too, or yeah? They, no. <laughs> there's the, the shape of their head. Actually, yeah, yeah. I think it predicts. You, you predicts use uh, uh, sonograms to measure their heart, their left ventricle. <laughs> That's a reference. Do, to do the any of them have big hearts? <laughs> That's yeah. a reference to the Kentucky Derby. Okay, Indeed. so I'm I'm exposing myself to this. Criticism? No, no, not criticism. No, I'm, doing, it, I'm doing it for just, a reason. So, how long did yeah. it take? This is a, a couple hour process. Everyone it, sort of many hours actually schleps around from room to room. Would they do it in the yeah. weight rooms here? Or? Wait, they start in the weight rooms and then we we moved out to the bubble. Mm-hmm. But you, it's you know, it, one, it's uh, from an outsider perspective, it's it's fun because it, 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 I mean, it's competitive. There's drama, even these little things. You know how people are. You turn a vertical jump into a major event how high is this guy going to jump and it matters so justin watson is this receiver's name and and he you know he's from a small school and it mattered how what his numbers look like and he hit 40 on the vertical which is a great vertical Mm -hmm. and better than people expected him to do and it was like a he basically improved his draft prospect by showing because vertical is is actually related to performance it's one of the best related of the of the of the combine stats Anyway, it was it. Was, the other thing is you get a better appreciation for what scouts do, what the scout process is like. It, it the whole thing, you know, sitting through combine, sitting through pro day, yeah. leaves me more sympathetic, both to the difficulty of being like a completely cold, distant analyst, and also that some of the virtues of 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 looking at things that closely. Now, I think most scouts could do a better job of you know running the numbers and seeing whether the things they believe matter actually matter mm-hmm. but i don't have any doubt yeah, I mean, that you pro- can pick up on things over the course of this process that you can't get otherwise but it's probably the case that we think we're picking up on some things that you're not so why do we think he was a, a nfl prospect to start with because he plays in the ivy league he doesn't have the competition the the because his performance presumably just stood out the standout performance essentially so this is one of the interesting things about completion rate i mean yardage well how did we figure this out about it i don't know i don't don't know his college numbers but it would be it would be it wouldn't be it would be basically yards after catch what the guy's doing on the field essentially the other receivers aren't able to do and so you know you might be surprised at the quality of competition it's not you know it's not d1 but there are very good athletes playing even ivy league um, sports around here, as we know from basketball, we're we're hoping eventually to get the Penn basketball coach. And of course, Penn, we haven't been on air since Penn mm-hmm. made its appearance in the in the NCAA tournament. So they were a sixteen against a one, and you know these guys are they they, they were fought, leading at the half exactly. What, they what, were very competitive with Kansas. What what behind the scenes thing is next up for you? What, <laughs> what uh, I might go to a, I might go to a draft uh, to a, to a team's draft. Oh, that would so be to see very some decision cool. making yeah, there yeah. at the end, and um. It, the, the the whole thing, you know, it's just easy to sit at a distance and criticize and kind of and the, more importantly, you miss some things, I think. And so this is this has been a process of my getting a better sense of what actually goes on. And that, that one of the things that gives you is a, where are the opportunities? Where 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 do traditional scouts do things that you just can't get sitting at a distance and just crunching numbers? Yeah. Uh, other things that are going on. So, by the way, the Kentucky Derby is coming up, and I 100% think we should go out to to. Um, we're going to have our our trainer, our regular guest yeah. on, but we need to make a field trip out there. And, and yeah, look well, at I mean, horses. honestly, the field trips for this year, we should obviously go to the Kentucky Derby. So, well, not to the Derby, we'll go I to the farms to, to the. No, let's go to the Kentucky Derby. Derby. Let's, let's, right. uh, can we do something? Ex- yeah, let's, let's, let's go to the Kentucky Derby. We need to go to the Coney Island hot dog eating contest. Obviously, <laughs> Eric's going to have to. I need I need the breakdown of that. Fourth, huh? 
So right? I, yeah, that yeah, that one you'll do without me, but I would lead the. I would drive oh, the bus. Oh come on! I mean, I would, would you have said that you would have been going to combines and stuff like that? I mean, yeah. five years from now, you could be a, a, an expert at the Coney my, Island hot my dog My least favorite event we cover is the hot dog eating. Really? Yeah, I don't want. That's I don't, really don't want to, anything to, to do with it. I huh. would say, you know, we don't cover at all fantasy. It's one of the things that you that's, rigorously uh, that's object That's because to. the only thing that yeah, I hate no, more, yeah, yeah. the only thing I hate more than No, I mean, it's universally accepted that the only person that cares about your fantasy team is you. I mean, that's just well, a fact. Well, that's true, but it is about a, a $20 billion industry or some massive yeah. amount, and people care about it in a lot. And I don't care about trucking either. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, that's but true. It's, it's a, I'm just, I'm, I'm pushing you here, but it is an analytics-driven activity. It's connected to sports, yeah. and you kind of walk away from it with great disdain. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I, I should explore that more, but I really just have no interest. Life's, I mean, you don't, you don't only care about so many yeah. things in life. I, I, you know, I, I care about some fluffy things, but there are only so many you can you can care about. Look, well, and that's, about, and that's a great. I, uh, that's why I think we make such a like a great team is that we all kind of we we have you know, our stick. Our things. We have our things, um, and and you know, thank well, goodness we got. Well, Shane doesn't like horse racing. I, I, I mean, it's, honestly, it's just he doesn't not like really. It's not. Either. It's not. A, it's <laughs> not. You know, I mean, yeah, I, things things where it's the car or things where it's the horse. I just uh, <laughs> but yeah, the car's I can't interesting. I mean, we, we've never. This is something we've never really explored. No, we've we've, we've always talked about. No, it. we have. No, no, no. I, I, I can in, get. In, in I can get racing? interested about it, but I. It's it's an effort, man. Okay, so effort. one thing we all ought to be interested in is what's going on with the NBA right now. Yeah. we're rolling into that playoffs. involves people, for example. <laughs> as, teams, as 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 a fun fact, teams are qualifying. Teams are being eliminated, and notably, number four in the East. Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, Close to number three in the East. And on and a seven-game win streak. Because if they're ranked... That's true. If they, if they pass ca- the, uh, Cleveland, they would have to play, what, who? In the, Boston in the second round, mm-hmm. right? Well, yeah. I mean, Boston's a solid team. It's not like we're drawing that big a distinction between Toronto and Boston these days, probably. Well... But let, I mean, let's celebrate them for what they're doing. Yeah, which is no, jumping it's fantastic. From, this is the first time in how many years have been competitive? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, what, what we've been waiting for many years to happen has finally happened, which is, is, is for them the to actually become a contender. Yeah. Is this, is this the, the, the end of the process? People talk about it as the process here in Philadelphia. It's, yeah. Not the end of it, but it's maybe the beginning of the end. And that, yeah. that would be a happy thing compared to where we've been. And, okay, beginning of the end, that's too dramatic a comment to make about this, but the Steph Curry injury mm-hmm. is, is not something to be sneezed at no no that's right i mean i i, I mean it's it, it is something that looks like it's only going to impact them in the early playoffs which means nothing because of course they're going to, you know at least to the semifinals but that's right a, that's assuming that when he comes back he's going to be yep. full speed no that's right that's right i mean i i feel like we had a similar concern last year with kevin durant uh, same type of thing i mean and every injury is different of course but we we managed to convince ourselves somehow that kevin durant was hobbled going into the last yeah playoff you know, race and and they somehow were able to so, so, see that. So through. two two things on that. One one is that that uh, we have some evidence that Curry, when he comes back from injury, isn't as immediately mm-hmm. as effective. Mm-hmm. He is off of his game. He is obviously a guy who depends heavily on motion and separation. Yep. And he's a he's a he's a he's playing on the perimeter and 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 he's a smaller guy. So that may be right. more important to him than it is to Durant. The other thing that we know is that Curry's more important to the team than Durant has been historically, mm-hmm. at least according to the stats. The 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 plus minus on Curry, and it's not a perfect stat, but it's it's not bad either. The plus minus on Curry is something like when he's in when he's in the game, there's something like plus fourteen or something, some some absurd right. thing. Plus fourteen 
Um, and when he's out of the game, the average lineup with some one of the other players is something like plus two. Okay. So that's it's a big drop so off. So if you convince yourself that they're uh, I'm not going to the final, that they are. They not only are the Rockets serious. Of course, we all know that those that's a serious yeah. team. But that the Warriors are they're vulnerable. They're more okay. vulnerable than they have been. Would you favor the Rockets against the Warriors? I'm coming up on it. I'm coming uh-huh. up on it. I mean, they're okay. performing so much better on regular season. The argument has been, well, the Warriors don't care. It they're would be exciting to see something, uh, a finals that wasn't Golden State against Cleveland. No, I kind of hate to say that because they do so many things that we support. Oh, I mean, they're, they're but, fun to watch, but, you know, we watched the same finals for three <laughs> so years let's take now, a look at the but. East. What do you think about Cleveland? They're they're looking very They've weak. got LeBron, so I assume they're going to the finals. <laughs> okay. So, it, prove me wrong. Yeah. The the Raptors, of course, are the interesting thing there. They they've kind of quietly mm-hmm. slipped comfortably into the number one spot up there. Uh, the Celtics are always dangerous, but they've looked they haven't. They, they talk about injuries for that team. They just haven't been as impressive. Um, well, how about let's let's see the Sixers make a run, a good sure. postseason run. I mean, Why I'll not? be cheering for them. Let's do that. Fools is back. Yeah. Do you, any word on that? Do you know? We need Bradlow to tell us the report on Fools. Yeah, yeah, I've actually not watched the last couple of games to sort of see how good he's been. But, I mean, it's exciting to have it, him it, back, It certainly. is exciting. All right. So that's NBA. That's a lot of business we've taken care of. Going into the last 10 minutes, let's change it up a bit. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. This is the time of the show that we run through a few over-unders, and we cobble some together ourselves, and we're open to your suggesting some to us on uh, uh, via email or Twitter. So we've got a we've got a few possibilities. A lot of baseball related. Uh, let's start out with baseball. Get you guys warmed up. You're my you're my baseball people. Over under on win totals for the year. Let's start. Let's start with the local boys. We were talking about Sixers before. The local baseball team are the Phillies, of course. They are in their own process of a sort. Hey, by the way, the Phillies have. I just learned this. They've got a big team of analysts now. Not only have they invested, but they've invested more heavily. And they're coming up on a strong, you know, like 8, 10, 12 group um, of, uh, of analysts, yeah. which is showing something. A big, that's a big shift from where they and were. And they've got some great people working for them. So. Some, Andy Golly, for example, yeah. is, is, is as impressive as it gets. All right. So Philly, 75 and a half wins. I'm going to take over on that, man. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, tell, tell a, us about, Talk us through it. Well, Okay. Um, they've got the Miami Marlins in their uh, division, so that'll be good for about 20 wins or so. Beating up on um, some teams. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of like what they I, – I think they've they've got – they've obviously invested in youth, and they've got a, a few different guys like Hoskins and whatever, and, and Nola, who I think are fantastic. I think they actually – I mean, 75 – it doesn't take much to get above 75 wins, I think. I Well, yeah. I'm going under. Oh. I think they're in the re- they're still in the s- in the center of their rebuild. I don't think they're going to make the moves that it's going to take to be a competitive team, even even if even a five hundred team. So, um, don't have to under. be a five hundred. No, nope, they don't. But Red Sox ninety one and a half over. Regrettably, <laughs> over. over both yeah, of you over. No no hesitation there. Yeah, yeah. I mean they've got they've got two starting pitchers that could compete for the Cy Young. They've got an amazing offense. I mean, not Yankees level amazing offense, but they've got an amazing offense. Um, decent fielding team. Yeah, what's not to like? I mean, I mean, Audie will tell me what's. No, like. no, it's a, it's a good team, Red Sox. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, run away from it. Okay, well they have In to. In fact, through... I give them better better shot. I actually think that that they're the Yankees are are predicted to to outplay them by three to five games 
I think that's an overestimate. Wow. All right. Well, let's do that one. Yankees over under win total for this season, 94 and a half. I think under. that's... I think that's high. Oh, they both go under. Really? Wow. Well, the thing is, part of it is that, is that I shrink heavier. Yeah, ninety five is numbers. a lot of wins. Yeah, you know? yeah. Okay. I mean, predicting any team to predicting be predicting ninety five is a lot. Yeah. Okay. So that's where I stand. So, so let me do a different one here. A head to head, Sox or Yankees to win the AL East. Of course, there are other teams that could win it. Yeah, of course, of course. But I mean, I think honestly, it's going to come down to like a game or two at the end. I mean, I'll, I'll say Red Sox just because that's what I hope happens. But I mean, it, and it, I'll it, say Yankees because but, that's but, but, what but, I hope happens. <laughs> I, th- I think Audie and I are in agreement that it's these close. are two incredibly evenly matched teams. Uh, yeah. Okay, they're both incredibly strong. It's exciting. So you talk about how you know because rare... we don't talk about those two teams enough in baseball. Right. There's just not enough attention there. Yeah. So you talk about how. R- r- how hard it is to project a team to win, yeah. say, 95 or 100. The mm-hmm. Astros, the Fangraphs has... Um, it's generally not a good forecast. I no, mean, generally, yeah. of course, we, we think forecasts are not regressive enough. And so, but we know someone's going to win that many, or it's likely. Here's an over-under for you that's related to that. How many 100-win teams over-under set at one and a half? Ooh. Um, so just as history, there were three last year. The year before, there was one. And in 2015, there was one. But for a three-year stretch, 2012 to 2014, there were no teams with 100 wins. So one and a half, above, uh, over or under. I'm going under. But you just told me how many great teams there were this year. Yeah, they also beat each other up. And and they're great only in the sense that they're distant from the, the next pile. Okay. And uh, I think if you look historically, to get two, two or three teams to go over 100, they really have to, to dominate the other teams. Yeah. There's a, there's a, I and think you don't think about, there's enough bad sort of like tanky yeah. teams out there that they can pile up enough wins? That's the that, Because that would be my argument That's for rich, going yeah. over is that, you know, you've got teams like Miami who are, you know, not really fielding, you know, so not even the trying to field a, a professional I mean, team. I don't, I don't think example. the Nationals are that good to win 100 games. Well, I mean, Miami yeah. also plays everybody else. You know, the Dodgers get to beat up on them and, and, and the Cubs, you know, But it used to be more balanced. I mean, the schedules in the in, in Major League Baseball were balanced. You played every mm-hmm. team in your in your mm-hmm. league and that's it. And yeah. you played them the same number. Now you play your team in your division Far, far more, more. Yeah. the teams in the other in your in your league, but in the other divisions, a lot less. And then you have this whole circular right uh, uh, round robin of of uh, um, that, other leagues. That makes me want to. I mean, surely Fangraphs is simming the season because it really would mm-hmm. depend on who's yeah. playing. That's who. right. So the the great teams in the AL East have to play other great teams right. in the AL East. But Fangraphs the, only had one right that was over the Astros, they used and, and Astros. maybe not accidental. They're in a weaker yeah. division yep. over, over there. No, but that's a to forecast one team is very different to forecast right. the number above a hundred. Right. That's so, right. No, that, I understand. That's that's noise. Yeah, I mean, okay. So a different one, we're, we're, another one. Last question about the season: uh, number of no hitters over under set at one well, and a half. One and a half. Amazing. There was a, a couple years back. There was seemed to be there was one seven. every other week. Well, there was one last year and one the year before, but in 2015 there were seven. Seven, including I think even a perfect game. So this is a. Uh, there were just that was an anomalously large number. So, so do you have any basis for this other than just distribution? Well, if you take the idea that they're that they're abandoning batting average, they're striking out more. Yeah. They're not trying to slap the ball. That would argue that no hitter should be going up. Yeah, not I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over. Okay. So the last I'm one. Go over too. The last one isn't an over under. It's just uh, the relevant question rolling into the weekend. Who are you betting on in the final four? Villanova, Kansas, Michigan, or Loyola, Chicago? Um, Loyola. All I'm right. going Loyola. I mean, I also, also because it's in our it's in our uh, 
It's in our, our briefing as Layovers Chicago, and I think that would be such an amazing name for a Chicago team. That's what I think of when I think of Chicago. The Layover. Uh, I'm yeah. taking Villanova. They're even, the Chicago flight they're delays. Even to yeah. win the whole thing. I guess we, we should have said, whose odds do you want to jump on? Nova at yeah. even, KU at 3-1, to one, Michigan 4-1, to one, or Loyola 10-1, to one, and now we all want Loyola because it's all more want fun Loyola. to play those long to shots. Yeah. All right, guys. That has been... Another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern, two hours live. This morning has been Cade, Adi, and Shane. Eric will be back soon, and we wish you the best between now and the next show. Many thanks to Matty Dots, the boss, and Daniel Bruno, the sound engineer. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.